I were to ask those of you that went to Sunday school when you were younger, which story you remember learning about, I wonder how many of you would respond with this story of Zacchaeus. It's a story most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with. Last week, we looked at a parable Jesus told about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee looked down on the others, exalting himself, but the tax collector humbled himself and asked God for mercy, recognizing he was a sinner. You may recall that Jeff described the tax collector as a surprising good guy. The outcome of the story would have surprised those that heard the parable. In his gospel, Luke often refers to tax collectors whilst drawing our attention to how Jesus cared for those in need and for those rejected by society. Tax collectors were not well liked in society, of course. But Luke was keen to demonstrate that Jesus was actually a friend of the tax collector amongst others. In fact, as we read the story of Zacchaeus, it's the sixth time tax collectors get a mention in Luke. All of them, whilst recognising they are often not accepted by society, they have a favourable positioning or outcome. Luke is showing that God has no problem with tax or tax collectors, rather the corruption and the greed that typically came with that role. (laughs) Making extra money through corruption was easy for the tax collectors. The authorities in Rome would fix an amount that they expected the tax collectors to deliver to them. Anything collected over and above that, the tax collectors kept. Naturally, this led to corruption being commonplace with excessive taxes being paid by the people and tax collectors becoming rich. No wonder they were despised. Zacchaeus was a Jew, a descendant of Abraham. His parents called him Zacchae, which means pure, innocent and righteous. Although that was his name, everyone knew it was a contradiction in nature. As chief tax collector, Zacchaeus had achieved his ambition of becoming very wealthy. He had thought the pursuit of happiness was the amassing of money. But in reality, it made him miserable. He had no internal peace. Zacchaeus was despised and hated and considered unclean. He was absolutely caught up in the corruption, more so because he was the chief tax collector. He was despised because his wealth had been extorted from fellow Jews on behalf of the hated Roman government. He was hated by all the Pharisees and the scribes in the district. He was treated as a heathen, excluded from all social life and made to stand with the Gentiles at a distance when he went to the temple. We only find the account of Zacchaeus in Luke. None of the other Gospels refer to it. Luke's accounts tend to focus on the treatment of the poor, the needy, 
and those that are outcast. Being a rich outcast, then, we can understand why this interaction with Zacchaeus catches Luke's attention. Let's unpack the story a bit more. I've got three points to draw out, like any good sermon. And the first one is, Jesus seeks the lost. Jesus was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. He had been performing miraculous signs in most places he'd been to. Just a few weeks before, for example, he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. As a result, Jesus was drawing quite a crowd (laughs) wherever he travelled. Many people, I'm sure, would have been making the same journey to Jerusalem simply to spectate and experience the signs and wonders that happened where Jesus was. In Jericho then, a large crowd had gathered to see Jesus as he was passing through the city. In verse 3, we're told that Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was short, so was struggling to see over the crowd to get a glimpse of Jesus. So he runs ahead and climbs a tree. He would have been relatively well hidden in the tree, and given his moral standing in the community, he would have been comfortable. He could view things going on without interference or trouble. Jesus made his way along the route, but when he reaches the tree Zacchaeus was in, he stops and looks up. Jesus had found him. In verse 10 we read, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That has to be the most, if not one of the most valuable truths revealed in Scripture. God is a seeker and a saver to those who are lost. God has been seeking the lost ever since the fall of mankind. When God asked Adam and Eve, where are you in the garden? At this point, it's probably helpful to clarify what exactly do we mean when we refer to lost? What does it mean to be lost? I expect there would be general acceptance here that when the Bible refers to the lost, it refers to the unsaved. And that's right, of course. But perhaps, because of the way we use the word lost in our everyday language, it can detract from the seriousness of the biblical lost's plight. We use the term lost for many things, don't we? We use it when we don't know where we are. Or we know where we're heading, we don't know how to get there. Sometimes we use it when we don't understand something we're being told. It just doesn't make sense. I'm lost, we'd say. Or you've lost me. Or we use the term when we've lost someone we love. You cannot spend time with that person anymore. And in some ways, there are relevant elements or consequences of each of those uses in relation to what we mean by Jesus seeks the lost. The lost don't know where they are, perhaps, or what direction to take, or perhaps they don't understand. They're not seeking God. 
or simply the fact they're not in relationship with God. The Greek word used here for lost is apollomy. I'm sure I've said that wrong. Which means to destroy utterly or to actively kill. In fact, this same Greek word translated lost in Luke 19.10 is translated as destroy in Matthew 10.28, which reads, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It can also be translated as perish or perishing, as in John 3.16. From these references, then, we can conclude one thing for sure. When the Bible uses apollomy, referring to the lost, it's not indicating a small problem. A slight loss of direction or a minor failure to stay on the right path. It's communicating a very serious state, one which the individual is powerless to remedy. God is a seeker and a saver to those who are lost. Now you might argue that it was Zacchaeus seeking out Jesus. After all, it was he that came to see who Jesus was. He clearly had a strong desire to see Jesus. He was not deterred by the size of the crowd that he could not see through. Many in his situation would have been put off at that point and not bothered making the effort. This is not a man who's going to get assistance from the crowd. They would have recognised him and closed ranks rather than to allow him to slip to the front like a child will be allowed at a Disney parade. No, Zacchaeus was despised and short. Many in that position would be forgiven for just turning on their heels and heading home. Not Zacchaeus. Something was driving him on. It was more than a curiosity. His desire is so great that he exercises creativity and climbs a tree. He was probably clothed in distinguished and dignified in all kinds of finery. It would have been a strange sight seeing him run down the road climbing a tree. Zacchaeus wanted to do everything in his power to see this Jesus. It had to be God working in Zacchaeus's life that made him have that determination. That yearning to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus knew he was not pure. He knew he wasn't righteous. He realised his life needed straightening out. He was happy to lower himself to this undignified state just to see who this Jesus was. To see this rabbi who he had heard associates with sinners. It had to be God working in Zacchaeus' life because it left, if left to human nature, he would not be drawn to Jesus. The Bible tells us in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, 
not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. No, it was Jesus that came to Jericho seeking Zacchaeus. The mission of Jesus is not to seek the well-fed, but the hungry, that he may feed them. His mission is not to find the healthy, but the sick, that he may heal them. His mission is not to seek those who are safe and self-righteous, but to seek the lost. Jesus knew where to find Zacchaeus, hiding in a tree. Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus, not because he was holy, but because he was wicked and unrighteous. He was lost. Now, Lucy will confirm that I'm one of those people that if I know something is lost, I cannot rest until that thing is found. The other week, for example, I spent ages looking for a remote control in the family room. I pulled the cushions off the sofa, pulled the sofa away from the wall, looked under the sofa, pulled the sideboard away from the wall, getting frustrated, to find that someone, who I'm not going to name, had used the remote control in another room. Because they couldn't find the remote control for that room. So the first remote was found, but where was the next remote? Yeah. (laughs) I wish I'd thought of that, Graham. More searching ensued. Lucy, of course, uses this to her advantage. When she's misplaced her car keys, work pass, purse, she only needs mention. Have you seen my such and such? And she knows Andy's search modes trigger, and I'll be off. I don't do it to be a hero, although I admit the momentary glory I get when I find these things is great. For me, though, it's more about knowing that something is not right. I don't like the disorder or the disorganization. Something not being able to be used as it should, or not working as it should. (laughs) Finding that one thing becomes my primary focus, often at the expense of stuff that in reality is more important. I'm not suggesting that Jesus seeks the lost in the same way. He's far more patient than I am. And he's got his priorities right. But Jesus does not rest in his seeking. (coughs) Some weeks ago, when we were in chapter 15, we looked at the parable that Jesus told about the woman who'd lost a coin. She lights a lamp, sweeps the house, searches carefully until she finds it. We heard, too, of the lost sheep, where the shepherd (coughs) leaves the 99 sheep and goes searching until he finds the lost one. The third story, you'll remember, the prodigal son, who heads out willfully, spends his inheritance, only to then return humbly, asking if he could come back as a hired hand. The joy the father shows on his son's return, the joy of the woman who finds her coin, and the joy of the shepherd who finds his lost sheep illustrates the joy that Jesus 
has with the recovery of the lost. The celebration is not only on earth, but also in heaven. Oh, what joy for Jesus as he finds what he's seeking. Far greater a celebration than when I find the remote control. Joy for Jesus then. But also, what joy for Zacchaeus. Notice that Jesus sought out Zacchaeus individually and personally. When he arrives at the tree, he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. He calls him by name. Zacchaeus must have been amazed that Jesus knew about him. How did Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? How did he know he was in the tree? Well, Jesus is the omniscient God who created Zacchaeus. God is a personal God who calls us by name. My second point. Jesus summons Zacchaeus by name. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I work for a relatively big company. Across the world, it employs about 60,000 people. I've had the opportunity to visit the head office a number of times, the Amex Tower. It's a huge building, 51 floors. And near the top, when you look out the window, you see helicopters flying below you. In that building alone, you feel very small. There are thousands of employees. Now, just imagine that the CEO of American Express came to find me at the desk I'm working at and says, Andy, stop what you're doing. I'm going to take you for lunch. It would be totally surprising. It'd be totally surprising that he had actually had a lunch, but also that he knew my name. Now, think about Zacchaeus's situation. This is God. The infinite God, this is God, who in Psalm 147 says, determines the number of stars and calls them each by name, coming to find Zacchaeus. And he knows him by name. Last time I preached, I spoke about Paul's conversion. I'm sure you all remember. And there too, Jesus called Saul by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Friends, we have a God who, despite being infinitely big, the creator of all things, knows and cares all about us. He calls us by name. Jesus was directive when he spoke, giving Zacchaeus a command, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. It wasn't a, hey Zacchaeus, would you mind if I come spend some time with you today? It was a divine command. There was urgency in the command too. I've been reflecting on why would Jesus say, come down immediately. I think that it was a case of now or never for Zacchaeus. 
This was Zacchaeus' last chance of redemption. This was Zacchaeus' moment. This was divine necessity because it was ordained by God the Father that Jesus must abide with him in that house that day. Jesus doesn't beg people to come to him. So what was Zacchaeus' response? He makes the right response by coming down the tree and receiving Jesus with joy. I'm sure there was joy for so many reasons. Not least, this would have been one of the rare occasions he felt accepted, given he was treated as an outcast. And what of the crowd? The crowd began to mutter because Jesus had gone to the house of someone who quite clearly was a sinner. Jesus' request of Zacchaeus to come stay with him would have revealed Jesus' acceptance of Zacchaeus. This would have shocked and outraged the crowd. It's the same reaction that the Pharisees had in chapter 15, when the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus needed to point out the nature of his mission in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those who think they are all right without the help of Jesus are left to save themselves, which will never happen. Jesus alone is the Saviour, the only Saviour, who comes to save those who need salvation. My third point then, Jesus saves. We're not told what happens at Zacchaeus' house. There's no account. We jump straight to what happens afterwards. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Although we're we're not told anything, it's clear something happened. I would go as far as to say the impossible happened. Back in Luke 10, Jesus instructs his disciples, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. I am sure Jesus would have done the same. He ate and preached the gospel, because his mission was to save Zacchaeus. You'll remember the story when the rich ruler approaches Jesus, asking him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. He departs with sadness when asked to give up what he owns. Jesus states that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The people who heard that were incredulous. Up to that point, wealth 
was believed to be a sign of God's favour. Who then can be saved? Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In contrast to the rich man, though, Zacchaeus receives Jesus with joy. And Zacchaeus makes promises to give away his money. Jesus says the impossible has happened. Salvation has come. Although Zacchaeus was rich, he was saved by Jesus, along with his whole household. How do we know Zacchaeus was saved? There are following the following telling signs. Firstly, Jesus tells us, Today, salvation has come to this house because he is a son of Abraham. Did he mean that salvation came to Zacchaeus because he was Jewish and physically descended from Abraham? No. Jesus meant that Zacchaeus believed as Abraham had believed. All who believe in Jesus Christ are descendants of Abraham. Zacchaeus was a physical descendant of Abraham, but he was saved because he believed in Jesus Christ. Secondly, of course, we see transformation. Zacchaeus becomes an exemplary rich disciple. He said, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus' actions represent a concrete expression of faith's presence. We see a change in Zacchaeus' behaviour. He has been touched by Jesus and is now responding with faith. This man, who earlier that day was simply trying to see who Jesus was, is now referring to Jesus as Lord. Salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house. Although Zacchaeus had worshipped money all his life, it was not his money that could save him. Zacchaeus made a public confession of the fact Jesus gave him life. Can you imagine the joy in that family? He may have been the greatest sinner in all of the wealthy Jericho district. But the Bible says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. No wonder, Zacchaeus said, I am going to give up everything. What a happy family, when all are worshipping Jesus Christ and singing his glorious praises. They were rich one moment, but instantly they became poor. They gave up all things because they were made rich by Jesus Christ. He does not have to sell everything to receive Jesus. But his heart is in the right place when it comes to his possessions. He becomes generous with his resources even seeking to make restitution for past wrongs. He is a rich man who impossibly enters the kingdom of God. Let's give some time over to application now. And I want to do that by asking just a series of questions. My first question of you would be, are you lost? 
We've seen in today's passage, Zacchaeus was lost and Jesus sought him out. We've also seen that Jesus came to save the lost. He came to Zacchaeus' house, not because he needed housing, food or rest, but Jesus knew that Zacchaeus needed him and his salvation. If you are lost, know this. The Bible would say that you are in deadly spiritual danger and in need of saving. If you're not sure about what the dangers are, take some time to read Luke 16 and the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We heard last week about the Pharisee who obeyed the law to the letter and looked down on others who did not behave the same way. That was a man who was relying on his own righteousness, in contrast to the tax collector who humbled himself and asked for God's mercy. The tax collector recognised he needed saving. We mustn't put confidence in our own righteousness. Friends, you cannot rely on anything that you can build up for yourself to meet God's standards. It's impossible. Not the way you behave, the standards you uphold, the position you hold at work or in the community, not the power that you may have, your money, none of that can save you. Jesus is the way. Sarah prayed that earlier. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. But also know this. Jesus knows where his lost sheep are. He knows exactly where you are. He knows your name, where you're at, where you're hiding, your problems, any misery you're facing, everything about you. I think Becca read earlier, actually. He knows everything about us. He wants to rescue you. We may have questioned Zacchaeus' parents calling their son Zacchaeus. Because we know that every child born is unrighteous, impure, sinful in nature. But another child born around the same time in Bethlehem, about 20 miles southwest, was certainly Zacchaeus. He was the Holy One, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He would save Zacchaeus and make him truly Zacchaeus, righteous in Christ. He can do the same for you. Is today the day where Jesus says of you, today salvation has come to this house? Are you hearing God summoning your name this morning? Don't delay in your decision, for Jesus would have you come down from the tree quickly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. The second application question, for those of us that are saved, Are we outwardly changed? When Jesus comes to stay at our house, metaphorically, something happens to us. Isn't that true? Becoming a Christian means we are transformed, a new creation. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. Just as we saw with Zacchaeus, there must be an outward change, evidencing the inward transformation caused by our salvation. Has our repentance involved matters of the wallet as well as the heart? 
As I was reading around Zacchaeus, one of the commentators I was listening to spoke about the fact that Zacchaeus paid away half his possessions. Presumably, he could only give half away because he he'd committed to pay back four times what he had defrauded. Why four times as much? If you go back to the law of Moses in Leviticus 6, the law stated that if somebody had stolen but then recognized their guilt, they must return what they had stolen and add a fifth. (coughs) In Exodus 22, it says, if a stolen animal is found in the thief's possession, he must pay back double. The difference being between the two being the thief hadn't recognized their guilt or acted on it. It also says, if the stolen animal is killed, the restitution is four or five times. The point is, Zacchaeus could have simply paid back what he owed and added a fifth. That would have met the expectations of the law. He did way more than that. Generous would have been to pay double what he owed. But Zacchaeus was extravagant in what he paid out. The Lord truly had transformed him. He was redeemed, and his heart was focused on the poor and being extravagantly obedient. Our true riches are in Christ. In Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus said, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. People want to disprove this verse, working their entire lives to prove it wrong. But they discover it's true. Money disappoints, power disappoints, possessions disappoint, they become a burden. The rich fool in Luke 12, whose field brought forth abundance, told his soul to eat, drink, and be happy for a long time. But God said that very night his life would be demanded of him and asked who then would get what he'd stored up for himself. Jesus said this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Are we transformed, brothers and sisters? How would we stand up to that well-known question we hear? If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And so to my last question. Are you one of the crowd? Are you one of those that closes ranks and are preventing others from seeing Jesus? Or perhaps you're grumbling because you don't want Jesus to seek and save others. That sounds shocking to ask out loud. May our actions not be such that they prevent others from seeing Christ. Jeff spoke last week about God's mercy, that it should be enough to stop us from looking down on others. And yet we do it. Are you looking around you? Is there a short Zacchaeus behind you? Are we asking, both in our congregation and outside, who among us have been left on the margins? Who have been ruled out of bounds? 
Who might surprise us with their generosity and faith? And who just wants to see Jesus but have been kept at bay? Our attitude and behaviour should be pointing the way to Christ consistently. We cannot make salvation in others happen, no matter how much we want it to. But we absolutely should be loving the lost and praying for them. God will do the rest. After all, that was the reason he came. Amen. Let's pray.